Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? How are you doing? Uh, I think I remember how to do this. Um, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, for those of you who may not know, I'm just, uh, I'm just getting back from a three-month sabbatical, and uh, it was a good time away. I had, a, I had a lot of time to rest and think and clear my, clear my head. Um, I did a number of um, fun and uh, sort of stretching uh, things. Uh, one, and one, one of the things everybody is interested in hearing about is I spent um, a week at a Trappist monastery. And everyone who knows about it just is fascinated. They want to tell us more about what that was like and what were the monks like and, and, and all those things. I don't have time to go into all of it. I actually uh, did a little blog about it, uh, but there's so much to tell. Uh, I thought I'd just bring a couple pictures, and this is a, a picture of the, uh, the abbey where I stayed. Uh, it's a pretty massive structure on a big plot of land down in southeast Georgia. There's not much else there, so, you know, we were pretty much monking it the whole week. But um, if you notice on the left-hand side, there's a big four-story structure. That's called the retreat house. And I stayed right <clears throat> sort of in the, the middle there section, just a few feet from, uh, uh, yeah, this is a picture of my room, sometimes referred to as a cell. Uh, that makes a lot of... Uh, sense to me um, is pretty pretty basic. So, looks kind of something out of a William Blatty novel, but it was comfortable and it was uh, it was fine. It, it was actually just a few feet from the Abbey Sanctuary, uh, where the monks spent a lot of their time, and I got to spend a lot of time uh, with them in there. Uh, they meet five times a day for prayer and chanting and 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 worship and all those things. And uh, it was a it was a it was a fascinating experience. The sanctuary is just absolutely beautiful, kind of gothic in its design. And the monks actually built that themselves. Uh, they moved to that area of Georgia back in 1940. And so it's a fascinating story. And I I learned a lot, as you can imagine, I learned a lot in a short amount of time about monastic life and. Uh, how these men um, give up, really they give up all their worldly possessions uh, and they commit themselves to God, they commit themselves to, to one community for life and they live very simply, uh, they live primarily in silence and in prayer. Uh, they don't take a vow of silence like everyone thinks, they just practice silence. Uh, as one of the brothers I had a chance to meet with explained, he said, you know, when you're talking, you're not listening. So they, they're silent most of the time. They talk when, it, when necessary. And so I had breakfast with one of the brothers. And uh, so he was telling me all about this. And I asked him about his life. And he shared with me how he had come to a place where he was a career guy. And he, uh, he was, had a good business. And he was traveling all over the world. And he said he got to a point where he was just, he was just, he was just trashed. He was just burnt out and just kind of... Um, tired of the corporate rat race, and he said he decided to go on a week retreat similar to the one I was doing, and he ended up staying. He's been a monk over 20 years. In fact, he asked me, uh, he invited me to stay for a month and fully engage the monastic life, and I said, I said in my head, that's not happening, brother. <laughs> I, I'm out of here, I'm out of here tomorrow, so uh, um, it, was, it was plenty for me. I was ready for, I was ready to get back to my own normalcy, but um, or Abbey normally, but um, it was a good experience, and uh, all that to say, these men live a very um, countercultural life, uh, one that's difficult for us to fathom, you know, and uh, the whole monastery experience got me to thinking about how Jesus calls all of his followers 
uh, not necessarily to be monks cloistered away in seclusion, but he calls all of us to a very countercultural, against the flow way of life, a life that Jesus said would be blessed. And so, over the next few weeks, I'd like to explore that a little more with you, you know, what Jesus says about this life and what he says in his, his famous Sermon on the Mount, and specifically what he says in the opening statements of that sermon, statements referred to as the Beatitudes. Uh, the word Beatitude comes from a Latin term meaning happiness or blessedness. And uh, the Beatitudes, as some theologians suggest, represent the best-known words of Jesus' sermon, yet remain the least understood and obeyed. And if you're familiar at all with the sermon, you know how in it Jesus um, sets out to describe certain qualities that characterize his followers. Uh, it's a sort of divine explanation of what the citizens of his kingdom uh, will be like. And so Matthew, he records the whole, the whole event. Uh, Jesus uh, was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he, he noticed all these crowds around him. So Matthew says he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, as was the, the custom of rabbis, and he began to teach. He taught the disciples, and really he taught anyone who was willing to listen. And uh, if you've ever taken a course in public speaking, uh, you know that, uh, as uh, uh, any good professor will tell you, the introduction to a speech uh, is really the most critical part because it needs to capture the attention of the audience and give people a good reason to listen. And if any introduction ever captured the interest of a crowd, this one did, because uh, what Jesus says was so unusual. It was so out of the ordinary. It was so unexpected. He describes... Uh, a manner of, of living that ran contrary, not just to the norms of first century culture, but to the norms of human nature. And when you, when you understand exactly what he was saying, it's pretty hard not to be impacted by his words. I mean, think about it. He starts off saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis uh, was once criticized for saying he didn't care all that much for the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in response to the criticism, he said, he said, well, as to caring for it, if caring for it means liking or enjoying it, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Translation, Lewis was saying, the words of Jesus are very easy to read but are particularly hard to hear and to accept. And uh, I'm pretty sure that was true of the day he first spoke them. It was true of the disciples, of everyone who was listening. I'm guessing everybody was a little freaked out. When Jesus starts off his teaching, blessed are the poor. Why? Well, the word blessed comes from a Greek term, which can and does mean um, happy or joyful in terms of emotion. Uh, but it implies so much more than that. It, it describes not just a sort of a fleeting emotion, but uh, more significantly, an objective state of being. In other words, Jesus wasn't uh, simply describing how the citizens of his kingdom feel at any given moment. He's telling us what and who they are in the eyes of God. 
He says they're blessed, they're, they're, they're happy, they're joyful. They're men and women who are fortunate, honored, favored, given life. But, but understand, you know, it wasn't the use of this word alone that grabbed people's attention. It was the use of it in connection with the term poor. See, uh, in first century Israel, those two concepts, happy and, happy and poor, did not go together. And when Jesus says happy are the poor, people would have been shocked. Uh, they would have missed the in-spirit part. They would have been like, what are you talking about? What is he saying? And I think if we're honest, we'll admit some of us have the same reaction, you know, linking the concepts of, of happiness and poverty together is just weird. Uh, it's just weird. The idea of happy poor people is incongruous. You know, it, it's like an oxymoron. In our 21st century uh, Western mindset, as, as it was with those in the ancient Near East, it's much more reasonable to say, blessed are the rich. Yeah? Fortunate are the talented. Honored are the educated. Favored are the beautiful. Rewarded are the powerful. Those comments make sense to us. But see, Jesus flipped things around and he, and he challenged our human way of thinking by saying happy, honored, favored, rewarded are the poor in spirit. And then a few sentences later when he says happy are the sad and contented are the persecuted, it becomes quite obvious that um, divine wisdom and human perspective are radically different. So Jesus starts off by shocking the crowd. You know, he grabs everybody's attention by declaring the unexpected. And by the way, one more thing about this word poor. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't merely refer to those who have little, but to those who have nothing. Abject poverty is what the term means. In fact, the root of the Greek term used here means to crouch or to cower in, in humble neediness. I don't know about you, but when I... When I hear of someone described this way as needy or as poor or destitute, I instinctively, instinctively think of those um, uh, who have no jobs or they, they don't have any money, they don't have cars, they don't have homes, they don't have the IRA accounts, they, they're struggling to survive with no financial resources. That's what immediately comes to my mind. But Jesus, the thing is, Jesus wasn't talking about economic embarrassment or financial uh, insolvency. His message was about the so, uh, was a message was not about the social ills you know plaguing our world. It's um it's not an anti-capitalism, anti-success, um, anti-affluence message. It's not. It's not about economics at all. Jesus was talking about a different kind of poverty, uh, poverty in the spiritual sense. Blessed, he said, are the poor in spirit. Here's my Ray K translation: Favored are the spiritually destitute for they are welcomed into the kingdom. Now, hearing that, for most people, raises the question, uh, okay, okay, so if that's the case, then how do I, how do we become uh, poor in spirit? And to tell you the truth, that's, that's the question I used to ask until it recently dawned on me that, that in a sense, in a sense, Jesus wasn't telling people, you have to become spiritually destitute. Because the fact is, we already are. Do you know what I mean? As flawed, broken, sinful human beings, in and of ourselves, we have nothing 
of spiritual value to offer God, nothing that can buy or earn our way into his kingdom. Poor in spirit means we are so deeply in debt to God, we have absolutely no ability to redeem ourselves. None whatsoever. The Old Testament uh, puts it this way, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. In the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul, um, he, he says, he reminds people, there's no one who is righteous, not even one of us. No one. So you see, Jesus wasn't suggesting we have to become spiritually destitute because the truth is, we already are. So what was he doing? Well, he was calling people, he was calling all of us to humbly recognize and acknowledge that reality. The reality of our spiritual poverty and our need of God's grace. And for those who do, Jesus said, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, for so many people today, and maybe even some of us here in the room, um, understand, it's not, it's not our sin or our badness that keeps us from God. It's not. You know what it is? It's our arrogance and our damnable good works. It's the things that cause us to think that we're moral enough, we're good enough, we're generous enough, we're religious enough to deserve, to deserve God's favor. We're entitled to it. He owes us at least that much. It's a total failure to concede our spiritual neediness, our spiritual destitution. And yet scripture is clear, you know, how God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But, you know, as human beings, uh, you know, we have a rather inflated opinion of ourselves and our own goodness. And to admit and take responsibly, uh, responsibility for our, our, sinful, uh, our sinful acts and sinfulness really cuts against the, the grain of our deep-seated pride and self-sufficiency. And really, that's the way it's been from the beginning, right? I mean... At the dawn of creation, when God placed man and woman in paradise, an environment of, uh, of, of, of beauty and innocence, he gave one stipulation. He said, I don't want you to eat uh, from a certain tree in the garden. Um, and most of you know how things went down. Uh, the forces of evil enticed the woman to violate God's word, to rebel against what he said was good and right and healthy and safe and best for them as human beings. She rebels against it. She, she takes the fruit. She eats some. She offers it to the man. He eats some, some. And then suddenly, suddenly, innocence was gone. Innocence was gone. And both man and woman experience, for the first time, shame and guilt and fear and relational breakdown with each other and with God. And they attempt to hide from their creator. But there's no hiding from the creator. So when God asked the man why he was trying to hide, instead of saying, well, I've sinned, I've rebelled against what you said. Instead, he says, you know, the woman that you, you put here gave me some of that fruit, and I ate it. It's not my fault, though. She gave it to me. And so God goes and he asks the woman what happened, and rather than acknowledging her sin, she says, you know, the serpent that you created uh, deceived me, and uh, I ate some of the fruit, but it's not my fault. So both of them try to blame somebody else for their, for their rebellion, including God himself. And ever since, that's been the pattern. As flawed human beings, we attempt to hide or at least deny what God sees as obvious 
our sinful brokenness. Look, at times we, um, we all willfully do things that go against what God says is right and good and safe and healthy and best for us as human beings. And really, who knows better than the God who created us? But we ignore it and we go against what God says. We sin. Apostle Paul says, he says, all of us have done it. All of us sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We all come up short of divine perfection. And yet, even when we admit that's true, our first inclination is to blame somebody else for it all. It's my parents' fault. It's my family's fault. It's my environment. Uh, it's my spouse. It's my boyfriend. It's my girlfriend. It's my employer. It's my genetic makeup. It's this, it's that's the other thing, but it's never me. We do all we can to deny the obvious and avoid personal responsibility, but I'm telling you, when we fail, when we willfully go against God and what he says is right and good and best, when we fail him, when we fail each other, when we mess up, it is our fault, nobody else's. And if, if we're unable to face that reality, if we're unwilling to acknowledge our spiritual destitution, Jesus says there's a problem because unless you humble yourself and own up to what's obvious, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you'll never fully embrace the grace of God. You just won't. Jesus' point is that we're all poor in spirit, all of us, but only those who truly recognize it and, and, re, and release any claim we have on entitlements. So that somehow God owes us. Uh, and, and, and until we just humbly rest in his grace and undeserving favor, because um, only then will we, will we uh, inherit and experience life in the kingdom. But you know, so often uh, people, even some in the church, get this all mixed up, all twisted around in their mind and in their thinking. There's a tendency to think that when we fall on our knees before God and we say, oh man, I've blown it. I, uh, I'm a flawed, imperfect individual. And we think that at that moment of confession, we are so far from God, and yet Jesus says the very opposite is true. In those moments, we're closest to God. He assures us, blessed are the spiritually impoverished. Favored are you who in all honesty and humility pray to God, God, I am nothing before you. I, I have nothing to offer. I'm a rebellious, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually destitute human being. I'm broken in desperate need of your grace. For I know... I know the wages of sin is death, but the gift you offer freely is life in Jesus. Now, maybe you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I get that. I, I get it. I'm imperfect. I mess up. I know I'm in need of God's forgiveness. I, 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 need, I know I need Jesus. I know all that. But I'm going to hold off dealing with that for now. I got other things on my plate. You know what that's like to me? That's like being on a sinking ship in the North Atlantic and the Coast Guard rescue team shows up and says, here's a life jacket for you, take it, it'll save you. And you respond by saying, yeah, I know, I've seen those things. Uh, I hear they work pretty well. And I'm thinking about taking it. Uh, I haven't made up my mind yet. So I'm gonna go see if the bar's still open, have a drink maybe, get back to the room, take a nap, sleep on it. And later on, if the offer still stands, maybe I'll, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take the thing. That's just ridiculous right? It's silly. It wouldn't happen. Because in that situation, you would grab the jacket and embrace the offer of rescue as your only means of hope and survival. 
and you do it gladly. The same is true when it comes to spiritual survival. You know, when we see our sin and failure in light of God's holiness and we understand the consequences, we will welcome and gladly embrace his gracious offer of rescue. And our concern won't be, will I accept God, but will God accept me? And Jesus assures us he will, because blessed, happy, favored are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Now, in case some of us are, uh, sitting here are under the impression that this mountainside statement that Jesus uh, makes wasn't as only for people considering faith, think again. Because it seems to me that for those of us who are Christ's followers, we who have already uh, recognized our brokenness and embraced God's grace, put our faith in Jesus, uh, there's a message in here for us as well. And the message is this, stay poor. Stay poor. In other words, Jesus' teaching here applies not only to starting poor, but remaining that way. Remaining spiritually humble before God and one another. And for me, it's, really, it's just really important that we talk about this because, uh, look, it is so easy for us as Christians in the church, and ironically, for those of us have, who have been Christians for a long time, it's so easy for us to cop attitudes of spiritual superiority over others, to over time drift away from grace and allow life in a, in, in a community like this to become a competition. We become quick to judge and criticize not only those outside the church but those on the inside and we feel, we feel compelled to prove our piety and worthiness over others through external uh, appearance and somehow outperforming them and we measure ourselves against one another by the way that we dress, the way that we talk, by the things that we do, by the things that we don't do, figuring that if I can demonstrate somehow that I'm better than you and I'm better than you and I'm better than you, then I'll be even more assured of God's acceptance. And so we cast judgments on others to make ourselves feel better and more spiritual. We pressure those who are different to conform to our arbitrary standards and preferences and liturgies and traditions and codes of conduct. And if they don't, we hold them in contempt and scorn. And sadly, sadly, we who have received <laughs> such an experience, such grace and forgiveness for the things that we've done in our lives, we who've experienced such grace from God suddenly refuse to extend the same to others as if somehow we earned those things. Somehow we deserved those things. And I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get how it happens. And I'm not, look, I'm not just saying I don't understand how it happens with you. I'm saying I don't understand it in myself. Because there are times when spiritual arrogance creeps into my own heart and life. And I tell you what, it is, it is hurtful, it is ugly, it's divisive, uh, it is wrong. And uh, I don't understand it. And whether or not I want to admit it, whether or not we want to admit it, I'm telling you it happens. It happens to all of us. It happens all the time in Christian churches. And wherever it does, wherever spiritual arrogance and superiority rears its ugly head, love and grace are obliterated. And the gospel of Jesus is, is, is diminished. So sometimes we need to be reminded that God takes issue with such things. 
And he will deal with us if an attitude of spiritual superiority sneaks into our lives in whatever context. You know, in whatever context. I mean, remember, it wasn't just James, but it was also Peter who wrote to Christians in the church, the already believers, the warning that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. They're writing Christians there. God opposes the proud. Is anyone feeling opposition lately? I mean, maybe things at work haven't been great, but your attitude's been, hey, man, it's my job, my profession, my career, um, my business. I'm going to run it the way I want to run it, do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody says. And as a result, you sense some divine resistance. Or maybe uh, you're a student and your approach to education is, it's my choice for, of classes. It's, it's my experience. It's my major. It's my career track. You know, it's my future to do with what I want, when I want, how I want where I want. God may resist that. Maybe when you make decisions on how to spend your time and exercise your, your gifts and abilities, how you spend your money, and you leave God out of all that equation, hoarding all of it to yourself, for yourself, he's going he's gonna to have something to say about it. Or if you're in a marriage that's struggling, or if you're in a relationship that's inappropriate in some, way, in some way, shape, or form, and your attitude is, God, look, this is how I feel. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I demand from the other person and from you. I don't know, man. That kind of arrogant self-centeredness is just not helpful. And I think God has something to say about it. I mean, trust me, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the situation. I mean, whether it's relational, professional, academic, social, congregational, uh, the fact remains, God resists spiritual arrogance. And I, can't, I just can't think of anything more upsetting to him, of anything that would break God's heart more than when he sees that happen among his people. How tragic that is. And if you're in the church and you're currently more aware of and focused on everyone else's faults and failures passing judgment on and criticizing others based on your own standard of spirituality and maturity, viewing yourself and your opinions as superior, knowing more than others, feeling entitled to have your needs, your preferences, your passions pleased and desires fulfilled. Well, look, do I really need to stand up here and tell you more about how that is not an expression of the humility, humility Jesus modeled and calls us to? I don't think so. You guys know. Jonathan Edwards, the famous and great 18th century theologian, pastor, author, really a key leader in America's great awakening, once wrote this about, about the church in the context of the, the spiritual awakening. He said, the first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into our hearts of, the, of those who, uh, into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It's the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead our judgment, a.k.a. spiritual pride messes up the church and diverts and destroys its mission. In his book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter titled uh, The Great Sin, C.S. Lewis says, if we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we're better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted upon, not by God, but by the devil. 
I mean, look, let's not lose sight of this. Let's not lose sight of this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I can't, look, I can't speak for all of you and your experience, but one of the things I've found in my life as a Christian is that some of the greatest lessons on spiritual humility have come in the midst of challenge, in the midst of pain, in the midst of adversity. Why? Because it's in those moments that I'm forced to face my own brokenness and my own, my own helplessness, my own spiritual destitution. And it's in those moments where it's like God whispers, dude, you came to me poor, but somewhere along the line you started feeling full of yourself. Hopefully this will remind you to stay poor. Remain humble, for without me, you have nothing. And that's true. And I'm guessing we all need that reminder every now and then, especially when as individuals uh, or as a church, we begin to look down our spiritual noses at one another and at the world around us. And for some crazy sinful reason, we start to believe we are so much better. I mean, it's amazing to me how quickly we forget. We forget who we are, what we are, and where we've come from. But make no mistake, if and when we begin to view ourselves as spiritually superior, we are in risky territory. Religious and spiritual arrogance is one of the most diabolical and ugly sins mentioned in Scripture. Jesus couldn't stand it, and God will oppose it. And I'm just wondering, you know, if as a Christian, you know, consider yourself a Christian, how's your spirit lately? Are you been, have you been feeling a little superior? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. In short, no matter who we are, where we're from, or what we've done, we have a holy God who loves us. We do. A God who sees the condition of our hearts and lives and will wait patiently until we fall on our knees and admit what's obvious to him. That we're all sinfully broken people, rebellious by nature, spiritually destitute. And because of that, Jesus uh, God sent Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to rescue us and give us life. Trust me, I, <laughs> I need the grace of God. I need rescue. I need a Savior. And so do each of you. And if you're willing to humble yourself before him and ask for him to forgive you, he will. And as we start poor, if we stay poor, Jesus said, we will experience the best of what God has to offer. Blessed, happy, favored, honored are the poor in spirit. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, I, I ask that in this moment together, um, no matter what the week has been, no matter where we've come from, experiences we've had, I pray that in this moment, maybe we can just have a moment with you. And I pray that you would give us each the courage to, to recognize and admit what's obvious to you, our Creator, that we are flawed and rebellious by nature spiritually destitute. We, there's nothing in and of ourselves that we can bring to you of any value that would earn our way into your kingdom, that would buy our way in. We can't barter our way in. There's nothing that we have. May we have the courage to admit that. 
And as we do, may we have a great sense of your love and your willingness to forgive and welcome us into your kingdom. And for those of us who've never done that before, I pray that, that we, would just, we would just do it. We would just say, Jesus, forgive me for all my sin and rebellion. Forgive me and grant me life. And for those of us who've done it already, maybe we've been followers of Jesus for a long time, I pray that uh, we would not miss the message to us to stay, to stay poor. And so I ask Holy Spirit that you would come and reveal to us areas of spiritual arrogance and pride that we need to deal with. Especially those that creep into our so-called religious life. For when it creeps into community, when it creeps into my heart and in my mind, um, it obliterates grace and love. And it decimates the truth of the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus. So we acknowledge, all of us, acknowledge our brokenness to you. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and to heal us, humble us, and grant us a great sense of your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, we're gonna receive uh, the morning offering now. And as we do that, let me, I just wanna encourage you to um, take the moment as we sing uh, to reflect on the goodness and the grace of God, the God who loves you and sent Jesus to heal us and take our brokenness and make it beautiful. If you know the, if you know the song, sing it with us. So I can't, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time think of any other way, any other better way to explain what we're talking about here. Because um, that's really what Christianity is about. It's not about, it's not about you um, proving yourself to God, proving you're better than other people. Um, it's not, man, it's not about that. It's about this. It's about God taking that which is broken and making it beautiful taking really, taking we who are broken and healing us and making us beautiful for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Just acknowledging that we have nothing, but in Jesus we're given everything. And I hope, I hope you understand that. If not, talk to someone you know from, from the church or you know, following the service, some of our prayer folks will be up front. You can come and talk with them. But um, man, I hope you'll make that kind of commitment to Jesus. And those of us who have in the past that will just Every now and then we'll just do an attitude check and stay poor. And if we do, I believe the love and grace of God and this news of Jesus, this good news, will go out from us and make a difference. Why don't you stand with me? Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, I hope you come back next week. We're going to continue on to see what Jesus says next. Each one of his statements is a shocker, trust me. So uh, come back. We'll spend some time. We'll explore together. We'll learn and grow together, okay? So let me pray and we're dismissed. So Lord, I ask right, right now, God, that we would, um, we would acknowledge that you take what is broken, heal it and make it beautiful. Make us beautiful. 
And as we leave this place, may we celebrate that and may we give thanks for it. And may the beauty of our lives shine forth in the world around us. And may the love and grace that we've experienced in Jesus pour out toward other people as we share this good news with our world. Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your people today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.